Thanks, Gary. Turn our attentions to Ephesians chapter 4, picking up in verses 7 to 16. Last week, Paul was highlighting in the first couple verses of Ephesians 4 the unity in the body of Christ and how it is joined together. And in these following verses, directly flowing from the unity in the body of Christ, Paul describes the diversity that God has bestowed upon the body in order to cultivate the unity of the body. Paul, we begin in verse 7. Paul writes, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Skipping down to verse 11. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Father, send your spirit, we pray. The spirit that has united us to you and to one another, Lord, send your spirit to give us insight that we might comprehend And more than comprehend that we might experience the love of Christ and our union with Christ. And our union with one another through Christ. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. For many years, scientists were puzzled by the mystery of the floating fire ants. These were in Texas, in the south, also in the Amazon rainforest. And what happens is that when a flood would come, these individual ants would turn into mats these floating ant flotillas that they would pop up and float. And in fact, as as a flash flood came in, these ants would join together and begin to float, and they were even able to pull ants from below up into the column through their connection through one another so that the whole colony could eventually survive. And they've actually tracked these ants to float together in these flotillas actually for multiple months as they have traveled for many miles until they once again landed on dry land. It was remarkable because any individual ant is rather dense (laughs) in its composition. And an individual ant, if it would be overcome by water, it would flounder, it would struggle, and then eventually it would sink and drown. However, if there were several ants, those ants would immediately band together and form these life rafts and rise above the, the water and float for many months. So scientists to understand, understood, under, to understand exactly how this worked would take collections of ants, and what do scientists do? They would take them and drop them in buckets of water. And as they dropped them in buckets of water, the ants would quickly spread out into these life rafts. Each ant with its pinchers and claws would grab onto the legs of the other ants. The adhesive pads on the legs would grab onto another ant. And the researcher observed that at first it looks just like a tangle of bodies, limbs everywhere. But the longer you look at the picture, the more you are able to distinguish between different body parts and see the connections. The insects then use the air pockets that form around their bodies to keep themselves afloat. And together, they act as if they individually 
are a part of some super organism. If you are connected to Christ Jesus, if you are in Christ Jesus, you have been connected to a super organism, which is the body of Christ. An organism, an entity that is greater than any individual entity, that is greater than oneself. An entity that is the body of Christ with Christ Jesus at its head. This has been Paul's theme over the several chapters of Ephesians that we've examined so far. And Paul in this passage here describes not only to why, to what end, Are we united to the body of Christ? And how exactly does the body of Christ work and function? So he begins in this passage by describing and telling us what the goal is. What is the goal of being united to the body of Christ? And he begins by giving, by articulating one concept with and describes five different facets of this one concept. They're actually the things that we've been looking at in the preceding weeks that he is summarizing here. First one that is mentioned is in verse 13. The unity of the faith. Now Christ would do all these things when until we all attain the unity of the faith. The unity of the faith is unity, not uniformity. We've, there's this remarkable picture that God works reconciliation through very different and diverse and at times hostile people. That the dividing wall of hostility between people has been torn down as Jews and Gentiles are joined into one family, one household, heirs of one promise and one covenant. Slave or free, male or female, joined and united into one body in the unity of faith. So Paul summarized in verses 4 through 5 immediately preceding this, that there is one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father who is over all, through all, and in all. We are united together. And Jesus' prayer himself, Jesus prayed himself rather, that the unity of the diversity of the body would be so evident that a watching world would know that there is a God. He prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17. He prayed that they may be one, verse 21, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, that they may also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have been given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them, you and me, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know, that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. There is a unity of faith. And as individual Christians, people of God, we should hear this and just say, yes, that is great news. Reconciliation between hostile parties is possible. Yes, there can be peace on this earth. Yes, there is no division or difference that cannot be overcome through Jesus Christ. And yes, the unity of the faith is where we are going and what God is doing in us. Hallelujah. Second facet that he mentions, the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge of the Son of God, which occurs in relationship with other Christians. Knowledge that you grow in information and you grow in experience. That's what Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 3. That you would grow in the knowledge of the Son of God, but that you would have strength to comprehend intellectual information, that you would understand with your mind in the people of God with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And, more than that, 
that you would know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God, that you would grow in your understanding and knowledge of God, but more than that, that you would have a depth of relationship with God in the people of God that comes to know God intimately, profoundly, personally, that drives your life and changes your life. It animates it every day in every moment and fills you with joy. As individual Christians and as the church, we can look at this and say, yes, that is where we are going, to a fullness of the knowledge of the Son of God. Yes, we can experience a greater joy and a greater knowledge of Him. Third facet that he identifies, unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood and the fullness of Christ. Mature manhood to the, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ. That is, that, yeah, that, that we would um, be the fullness of the body of Christ. He is continuing the metaphor that he began in chapter 1, verses 22 and 23, that the church is the body of Christ. It is where the fullness of Christ is known and experienced. That the fullness of Christ is known in the church, in the body of Christ, and it cannot be known to that extent or to that depth separate from it. The church collectively as a whole and the church in its local expression has varying levels of the fullness of Christ within it. Fullness being the expression of godliness and the power of God at work. The fullness of Christ and for the church to be filled with Christ would be that the church would radiate with everything that is glorious and great about Jesus Christ. And as individual Christians, we can say, yes, there is more to my faith to come. My, I am not stagnant. That the Christian faith was not a decision that I made some years ago and that's the end of the story. But rather, throughout my life, I can grow into the fullness of knowing Christ and experiencing Christ and becoming more like Him, not only me individually, but we as the people of God. Yes, that is where we are going. To the unity of faith, to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood. Yes, we are moving in that direction. Number four, that they would have a The goal being a firm doctrinal foundation. He describes it in verse 14. He says, we want all of this to happen so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Doctrine is having the right beliefs. Doctrine is understanding how the teaching of the Bible fits together. As an individual Christian, it means that you know what you believe, you know why you believe it, and you are able to articulate and defend your beliefs from things that other people say. That you would have a firm foundation individually, that the church would have a firm foundation so that it is not tossed about by human cunning, by craftiness, and by deceitful schemes. Unfortunately, I have known many well-meaning people who have been deceived by twisted teaching, who have been carried away by a recent wind of doctrine or teaching, or who have been carried away by a person who had a charismatic personality or who was really meaningful to them, and their faith was negatively impacted. The challenge of being deceived, if you are deceived, is that when a person is deceived, They are convinced that they are absolutely right when they're wrong. That's why you're deceived. Because nobody who's deceived thinks I'm deceived. 
right? I mean, if you think you're deceived, you get corrected on that thing. But people who are deceived, who think that they're absolutely right. And Paul's concern here is saying, no, you need to grow so that you would have a firm doctrinal foundation. Now, sometimes today, people think that learning doctrine, they think that that is inherently divisive. Learning how the teaching of the Bible fits together, how what you believe, why you believe it, and how it all works, people feel that that is inherently divisive. But it is not truth that divides people. It is people who divide people. It's not truth that divides the church. It is people who divide the church. People who don't unite about those things. And so Paul says, where is God going? What happens when he unites you to the body of Christ? We are moving towards, we are growing up, that there would be a firm doctrinal foundation as individual Christians. We can look at this and say, yes, there are reasonable answers to challenging questions. Yes, there are. Christianity has answers to the difficult things that people ask and struggle with in the most difficult portions of their life. Yes, the Bible has those things. That is called doctrine. The fifth one, that we would, the goal being the unity of the faith, knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, firm doctrinal foundation, and quite simply, that we collectively and individually would grow up, that we would grow up into Christ. He says in verse 15, speaking the truth in love, We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head. That the body of Christ, the church, the collective entity, would grow up in every way. We collectively and individually, that in every aspect of us, Jesus Christ would fill our life. In every aspect of our conduct, Jesus Christ would be present in evidence. In every aspect of the things that we do as a church... Christ would be evident and His grace and mercy and truth would radiate. All of these things God is doing when we individually turn and put our faith in Christ and unites us to the body. Those are noble goals that should encourage us. Do they not? Well, how exactly does this happen? How do we attain these goals that Paul has laid out here? How do they occur in the church? How do we experience them? It's the next question we need to wrestle with. He tells us in verse 16. Speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, unto Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. How does the body attain these goals? It attains them by building itself up in love. The body joined together every part working properly, that the maturity of the church comes through every member, which is a crucial part of the body, every member with its health and its growth so that the body itself builds itself up. It's a wonderful image. Like the human body, the church, the body of Christ, needs the whole body to function and the whole body to build itself up. Consider how interdependent any one part of the body is in order to function. Consider how any one part of the body needs every other part of the body not only to properly function but to grow and to get stronger. Consider one muscle, one, one muscle on a leg, one quadriceps. How does this muscle properly function? How, what does it need, need? Well, it needs a hand to shove food into the mouth 
so that the mouth can produce saliva and its jaws and teeth can crunch on it and digest that food and then it can get swallowed and go down into the stomach where it is digested and as it is digested, impure things are taken away and the nutrients, the vitamins, minerals, the proteins, the amino acids and things that are needed, the sugars, those things are transmitted into the bloodstream. So that the bloodstream, as it circles or circulates around, can get pumped to the different parts and to the different muscles. And then as that muscle, when it is, which is connected to the skeletal structure, in order for this muscle to fire and to work, you have to have the brain, the side is going to run or move, and then it sends a signal and fires off the neurotransmitters, and the neurotransmitters transmit through the nerves, make their way all the way down to that individual muscle, and as it, it begins to fire... In order for that muscle to work and function, it has to have the other muscles firing with it. Other one that, otherwise, that one muscle is just spasming. And as that muscle begins to work, what it needs is it needs the lungs to supply oxygen. As the heart begins to pump faster, pump the blood through the lungs so, that the ox- so it gets oxygen, goes down to that leg muscle, through the vascular system, moves down to that leg muscle so that the nutrients and oxygen can be supplied to that muscle. And as it's supplied to that muscle, the waste and the carbon dioxide can be taken away so that it can keep working and grow and get stronger. All of these things being interdependent and necessary for that one muscle to function. Now, what happens when an insignificant part doesn't seem to work right? What happens when a seemingly insignificant part gets injured? Let's take... A toe. What happens when a toe, for example, gets hurt, gets broken, gets sprained? What happens to a runner? That runner suddenly notices that he has a toe that didn't, he didn't pay attention to before. He or she didn't pay attention to before. And as that runner begins to experience pain, they begin to favor it, and they begin to compensate. And as they begin to compensate, their stride and their gait begins to shift, and they begin to roll their ankle. And as they roll their ankle, that hurts their ankle more and more, and then that begins to hurt their kneecap, and then that begins to hurt their hip. And as their hip begins to get out of function, that shifts the way that they're carrying their weight and shifts their spine, and it continues through. And then the other parts of the body, because they're doing things that they weren't supposed to be doing, are experiencing compensatory pain as they're seeking to compensate for the injury and the hurt of one individual part that at this particular moment is not working properly. And it is no different in the body of Christ. Not only are we interdependent, we are interdependent, which is necessary for our own proper functioning. But when your part does not work properly, it affects everybody else. Everybody else experiences compensatory pain. And just as it is necessary for the body to build itself up, all these parts working together, all these parts exercising, if a part is not exercising, what happens? Everything else works harder, but that individual part begins to atrophy. And it's true within the body of Christ as well. As an individual member exercises, it itself begins to get stronger in independence with other people. It itself gets stronger, and as it gets stronger, the rest of the body gets stronger, and the rest of the body gets built up. But as an individual Christian is not exercised, as this part is not used, it begins to atrophy and get weaker and weaker. And as it's disconnected from the body of Christ or just not being a part of it and not being used, what happens to that person's faith? Their faith gets weaker. Their knowledge and experience of Jesus Christ gets weaker and becomes less and less. 
the unity of the body of Christ is no longer experienced. Instead, they feel like they're this isolated individual part that doesn't become connected. And they say, well, I don't feel like I fit here anymore. I don't feel like this is the place. I feel like I'm all alone. And the unity which Christ purchased, people become isolated and become, their faith becomes weaker and weaker. The power of God which works through the body of Christ, the life-giving energy diminishes. In short, you atrophy. And, the rest, and as you atrophy, the rest of the body experiences compensatory pain. Jesus gave a little bit of a more alarming example. He compared the church to a vine and branches. And he said, for every branch that doesn't bear fruit, it's going to get cut off and thrown into the fire and burned. But Paul's point here in this passage is that these incredible goals that Christ has done for us, that he is working to make happen, the unity of the faith, the knowledge, the experiential knowledge of Christ, the fullness of Christ working through us, maturity, a firm foundation, all of these things happen through the body working within itself and building itself up in love. Every part necessary for an individual growth and every individual necessary for the growth and the thriving of the body as a whole. Specifically, what does that look like here at Cornerstone? as an individual member of the body of Christ, what we want for each person is three things. We don't want every, a person to do everything. We want three things to be present in their life in the practice of their faith. Number one, that engaging in worship, corporate worship, is the highest priority of their week. Why? Because that's what the Bible says should be the highest priority of our week. Gathering together and worshiping God and being strengthened by, by Him. Number two, so one is worship. Number two is that you are actively growing in your relationship and knowledge of God. That typically best occurs through our small groups, journey groups, community groups, um, our Sunday school classes, and not just information, but information that is shared and experienced in community. That you grow in knowledge of God as other people are growing in their knowledge and experience of God together. So worship, grow, and the third one is that you serve that you find some place to exercise your gift, to exercise how God has made you a part of this body, vital and important. Why do we want this? Because that is God's design for the body to build itself up. That is God's design for how all of these goals would be achieved. And if God has brought you here, He has brought you into the story of this church. He has brought you to be a functioning, integral part of this body. Now, the way that God works in our own community is that He regularly removes large portions of that body. And they just move across the globe and around the, and around the country. And when that happens... What often happens is someone comes to Cornerstone, they look around and they say, well, everything seems, there's a lot of stuff going on here. There's a lot of things that are happening. The lights are on. Everything seems to be working. I guess I'm not needed. What that person usually doesn't know, which we in the church office know, is how like half of our ministry teams have just moved away over the last couple months. And the way that God works in this church for the church to build itself up in love is that as people become a part of it, they find their place in the body And there, they themselves experience spiritual growth, nourishment, and strengthening. And the body itself and the church as a whole grows as it builds itself up in love. After describing this, how these goals are attained, he gives more detail about the specific parts of the body. 
and how this works. So what are the parts of the body, the third thing we're looking at here? He begins by saying in verse 7, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Grace was given to you. Okay, this is not a saving grace. This is a grace that God has given to an individual according to Christ's gift. He has given it to an individual for the building up of the body. He gives different gifts, different measures of Christ's gifts, different measures of His grace given to each one of us as we're connected to each other. Not only does God bring diversity into the family of God by uniting different people together, but God bestows diversity upon the church and within it by deliberately giving different people different gifts and different outpourings of grace so that they would be forced to be interdependent upon one another. God designed your faith. His design is that your spiritual journey would be interdependent with the faith and the life of others within the church. There are no self-sufficient Christians. There are no independent Christians. If they are, they are just simply Christians who are atrophying. If there are Christians who are disconnected from the body of Christ, they are the parts that are not being used, that are not exercising, that are growing weaker and weaker. But God has designed you and designed your faith to be interdependent with the faith and the working of God's Spirit in other people. Switching images here, it's like a puzzle. It's like a puzzle. An individual puzzle piece only achieves fullness when it is connected to the whole. You know, when you open up a box of you know, puzzle, puzzle, you pour the puzzle on the table and you flip them all up so you can see the images all on the, the one side. And every once in a while, there's a puzzle piece that really stands out. And you're like, wow, that's beautiful. I really see that. I'm excited to put that one in the puzzle. And then sometimes you get a puzzle piece and you look and you're like, what is that? Like, how on earth does that thing fit, right? But then as the puzzle's coming together, you take that awkward-looking piece, and then suddenly, that is the piece that ties the whole thing together. It's the piece that, that, that makes the whole image beautiful and makes the image work, and without it wouldn't be there. And there's also sometimes pieces that are just another blue piece and a blue sky matching the other blue pieces in the blue sky. But without that individual piece, there would be a hole in the picture. God has made you as an individual puzzle piece and that your fullness can only be experienced and known as you are united to others. Stated differently, as Paul Tripp writes, your life is much bigger than a good job. Your life is much bigger than an understanding understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It is bigger than beautiful gardens, nice vacations, and fashionable clothes. In reality, you are a part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. And God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom, and progressively changing them into his likeness, and he wants you to be a part of it. God, his design includes you. And the body is weakened without you. Grace given to each one of us. He then goes on to delineate a measure of God's grace that he particularly gives to the church in a particular way. 
and he clarifies its function. He says in verse 11, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for the building up of the body of Christ. Now, to understand the emphasis here, we're going to quickly go through each of these, so stay with me. And he gave the apostles. What are apostles in the New Testament? The word apostle is used three different ways. It's used in a very generic sense, which which means one who is sent. And in that usage, every Christian is sent out as a messenger of Jesus, Jesus Christ. That's not the usage in this passage. It's also used as apostles of the church, which were referred to as people in the church who were made to be messengers and to accomplish a specific errand. That's the second usage of the term, also not the usage here. And the third usage of the term of apostle is those who were apostles of Christ Jesus. Those who were specifically chosen and authorized by Jesus Christ in the flesh. Those who were physical eyewitnesses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And upon whom God decided, Jesus decided, that he would establish his church. In this sense, there are no apostles today. Where then is the gift of the apostles? It's contained in their record and testimony, which is the word of God. The second word here. He gave the apostles and he gave the prophets. Biblically, who are prophets? Prophets are those who stood in the counsel of God, who heard the word of God directly from God's mouth or saw his word. They were the mouthpiece of God to give direct revelation from God. And almost always, their direct revelation was validated by miraculous signs and miraculous wonders. Again, in this sense, there are no prophets today. If there were, we would need to add what they say directly to the Word of God. And you as an individual Christian and as a church must listen and obey because someone is giving you something from the throne of God himself. In this sense, there are no prophets today. Where is the gift of the prophets contained? Again, in their testimony recorded in Scripture. Paul emphasized this in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 20. That you are members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself being the chief cornerstone. What is the foundation of the apostles and the prophets? Again, it is the word of God that he has given to the church. The next two are gifts and roles that are present within the church today. Apostles and prophets. Thirdly, the evangelists. Evangelists are those, uh, the word there for evangelists is from the Greek word which means good news. Evangelists are good newsers. They are those who are gifted to make the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, to make it plain, to make it understandable, to make it compelling and convincing, particularly to those who have never heard. There are evangelists who are called to take the gospel into new places, to the ends of the earth where the gospel has never been preached and proclaimed. And there is a great need today to develop the gifts of evangelism and to send out evangelists to penetrate the vast areas of society that don't know Christ and the vast people groups of our world that do not know the good news of Jesus Christ. We need to pray that God would give more evangelists to our church. The fourth mention here, and I say this as a fourth because this is one group, there's the evangelists, and then the fourth group is the shepherds and teachers, which should best be understood together. The word there for shepherd means pastor. Those who are called to teach, to feed the flock, to care for the flock of Jesus Christ, to nourish it, 
with the Word of God as its food. All five of these positions, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers, all, all five of them, or four of them, are focused on teaching. They are no longer as apostles and prophets because their ministry is now contained in the Word of God. But what they have done is the foundation of the other two. They are evangelists who preach the Word of God that others might know the good news of Jesus Christ contained by the apostles and prophets. And there are pastors and teachers who shepherd and explain and counsel and exhort based upon the Word of God given by the apostles and prophets. That the teaching, exhortation, explanation of the Word of God is the food that feeds, nourishes, strengthens, matures, heals, defends, and gives life to the church of God. And there is a particular need in the life of Christians for those who God has given and given the grace to be shepherds and teachers and evangelists so that the church might be healthy and the church might grow into the goals that God named in the beginning of this passage. What's the need today? One example from Third Millennium Ministries, which focuses on bringing the gospel to the ends of the earth, particularly training pastors who have never had a day of training in their life, but who are pastors of churches. He says this, just imagine the kind of troubles that come when Christian leaders know little about the Scriptures, but where the church is growing quickly. There are very few well-prepared men and women to lead God's kingdom. By the year 2050, more than half of the world's Christians will live in Russia, Latin America, and Africa. But between 80 and 100 million Christians live in China today. Christian minorities are growing throughout Muslim nations in the Middle East and along the Pacific Rim. And the problem is that without those as pastors and teachers, the churches are prone to sin and error, and they are defenseless against false teaching, virtually defenseless against false teaching, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, and the craftiness and deceitful schemes. The church of Jesus Christ, these goals... The five that I mentioned are dependent and only come through the regular teaching, explanation, and application of the Word of God within the body of Christ, which is His church. That is the grace that's been given in the particular function within the body as a part of the body of evangelists and pastors and teachers. And here is the way this is supposed to work. Apostles and prophets, pastors and teachers, evangelists, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up of the body of Christ. What is the biblical job description of pastors and teachers? To equip the saints. Why? So that the saints are the ones who do the work of ministry. So that as the saints, the people of God, do the work of ministry, that the body builds itself up in love. What is the work of ministry? Well, there's certainly a teaching aspect of it. But there's caring for the sick helping the poor, helping those who are impoverished, visiting the shut-ins. There is worship and the corporate worship and music and, leader, and worship on Sundays. There is Sunday school. There is discipleship ministries, evangelizing the lost, 
devoting themselves to prayer. There is counseling. There is the need to intervene in crisis in the lives of individuals and families. There's baptisms. There's being a, felt, a body where a Christ is experienced and supported through, the, through the, the journey of life, through marriages and weddings and funerals and struggles and miscarriages and death and loss and graduations. There is missions, there is outreach, there's the communications, there's small group ministries, there's discipleship, there's all these things and many more. And the biblical view, according to Paul, is not that the pastor would be the primary minister in a church. Rather, the role of the pastor teacher is to be the primary equipper. Quite frankly, the primary equipper of people who are far more gifted than he is. You know it from experience. Rarely do the best athletes make the best coaches, and rarely are the best coaches ever the best athletes. But rather, as a role in the body of Christ, the role of the pastor teacher is to equip the saints. It is not to do the work of ministry. Rather, it is to equip the saints so that the saints do the work of ministry, so the body itself builds itself up. In fact, a pastor should be doing very little of the work of ministry, not because he, we, I am above or beyond it, but because it is wrong to let the parts of the body atrophy. It is wrong because a pastor and teacher cannot build the body of Christ. A pastor cannot build the body of Christ because God designed it so that a pastor could not build the body of Christ. Rather, what God designed was that a pastor would equip the body to build itself up in love. Perimeter uh, Church in Atlanta, um, Randy Pope, the pastor there who wrote the Journey Group curriculum, which many of you have been going through, for when they, people join the church, they actually have a job description for the members of the congregation. And they've got two things listed on the member's job description. Your first job, if you don't know it, is to discover your spiritual gifts. That is to discover the grace that has been given to you. The second part of their job description is to view themselves and to act as the primary ministers of the church. So if you're becoming a part of the body, what's the thing to do? First is to understand what is my, what is my role in the body. And number two, when ministry needs to happen, understand that I am the first person to make it happen, not somebody else. That the members are the primary ministers of the body of Christ. Why? So that the body would build itself up in love. This is a very uh, instructive idea. Because when you are visiting churches and looking for a church to connect to or a church to join, there really should be two questions that you should be asking. Oftentimes, the questions that people ask are, what did I get out of it? What does this do? How does this serve me and serve my family? But there's two questions that should be, a pre- be preeminent. Question number one, is there good teaching from the Word of God in this place? Not great teaching, good teaching. Just good, solid teaching. Not great teaching. If you're looking for great teaching, you're probably looking for the wrong thing. And plus the fact great teaching only comes through a special outpouring of the Holy Spirit, and that's that. So don't look for that. But look for good teaching. Look for someone teaching in the church, in the pulpit, in the, in the life of the church that is good, solid teaching from the Word of God. That's a must. The second question that you should be asking is, is this a place where I can discover and use and develop 
my role in the body of Christ? Is this a place where I can grow in the grace that has been given to me by Jesus Christ? Is this a place that I can grow and be used so the body will build itself up in love, so that we might attain the unity of the faith, so that we might attain and experience the knowledge of the Son of God, that we might have an experience of God that surpasses understanding. Is this a place where I am going to be able to serve and be equipped and grow as a member of the body of Christ? The Lord Jesus has this incredible goal in our union with Christ. Incredible goals that are not achieved individually, but are achieved collectively as the body. And he has designed it that they are achieved in a very beautiful way. The functioning, the proper functioning of each individual member so that the body builds itself up. And so as an individual member, may you rejoice in the grace that has been given to you. For individually... Left alone, you will struggle, you will flounder, you will sink, and some you might drown. But united together, you can float and ride out any storm or flood. United together, the body of Christ grows for the fullness of Christ to be expressed in it, that the power of God might be known and experienced in this world. And so it is a calling for us that we, that we, individual Christians united into the body that we, by the grace of God, would build the body of Christ. Let's pray. Father, I confess to you that I love to be self-sufficient. I really don't like needing anybody else. But you, Lord, by your grace, confront my arrogance and pride. And you confront my arrogance and pride by your grace giving me faith and your grace making me into a person who will only grow into the fullness of which you have designed when I am interdependent and connected to the vitally connected to the body of Christ, to my brothers and sisters in Christ. So, Father, I do pray that you would grow us as a body, that this body would build itself up in love, that it would thrive, that it would grow in strength, that Christ might be seen and experienced, that the unity present within the diversity of this place might increase, that people might know that you are God, and that we individually would grow strong so that we would have a firm foundation, that we ourselves would not atrophy, but rather that you would use us to build up others, to build up the body that the fullness of Christ might be a reality in this place, in our lives, and through your church. Lord, do this for the glory of your name and the honor of Christ. By the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.